Well, in the last two services, the Floyd Brothers, that's a new band, the Floyd Brothers, have sung two of my very, very favorite songs. That was outstanding, Isaac. Thank you. All right, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11. I've titled the message this morning, Can You By Searching Find Out God? This is the question that Zophar asked in Job 11, verse 7. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do deeper than hell? What canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Now this is a good question for us to consider. Can you completely know God unto perfection? That's what he means. Can you completely know everything there is to know about God with the human mind? Now, the obvious answer to that question is no, of course not. God is is so high above us. There's no way we can know everything there is to know about God. That's why I read to open the service from Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's nature is not our nature. So we can't comprehend God. God is spirit. We're flesh. We're finite, very finite, aren't we? God's infinite. We're sinful. God is holy. How can a maggot ever possibly Know God. Know the eternal God. Well, by human logic, we can't. We can't figure out who God is. We can't figure out what God is like. We can't figure out how it is that God saves sinners by human understanding. How can a holy God ever accept a sinful man, woman like you and me? With our human understanding, we can never understand that. We can never comprehend it because God is too far above us. Our understanding is dead and darkened by sin, so we can't understand God and His holiness. Look over at Romans chapter 1. If we try to figure out what God is like, we use our dead, small mind to figure out what God's like, we will always be wrong. Always. If we try to figure out God with our sinful imagination, we'll always make God too small, make ourselves too big. We'll never make ourselves as sinful as we really are, We always make ourselves too sufficient. Romans 1 gives us a very good example of that. Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. It's manifest to them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but become vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now left our own imagination, 
we make God whom the heavens cannot contain to be like an animal, like a bird or a fish or an insect or worse yet like us. Worse yet like us. That can't be more the opposite of who God is. But that is the very best our corrupt minds can come up with. By our understanding, we can never know God. Now that's true, but that is not to be, that is not to, uh, to say that God cannot be known. No, God can be known. If we're going to have eternal life, we have to know God. Isn't that what our Lord said in his great high priestly prayer? Eternal life is to know God. Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So somebody's got eternal life. I know that. So God can be known. But always be very, very careful. I don't think anybody here is making God out to be an insect or a fish or something like that. But be very careful not to try to make God in your mind what you think he is or what you think he ought to be. God is who he says he is. God is who he describes himself the way he describes himself in his word. And the only way we can know that is by divine revelation. We can't figure it out. It's by divine revelation. Look back at Matthew chapter 11. We're going to turn to a few scriptures this morning, but I want you to see these things from God's word so you know that they're true. This is not something I'm just making up. This is what God's word says. If we would know God, God has to be the one to reveal himself to us. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and you've revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. The Father has pleased him to reveal Christ to reveal himself, to reveal how God saves sinners. And he does it to babes. We looked at this Wednesday night. He does it to those who are helpless in themselves. Those who are not, they know, I'm not smart enough to figure out God. That's who God is pleased to reveal himself to. Now, if you're here this morning and and you know God, many of you do, you know God. You love him, you believe him, you trust him. If you know God and you know how God saves sinners, I'm telling you, the only reason for it is God's been pleased to reveal that to you. Look at over a few pages at Matthew chapter 16. We didn't figure this thing out. We didn't figure this thing out because we've sat under the best preachers who ever lived. We figured this out. We see this because God revealed it to us. We didn't figure it out at all. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I the son of man am. And they said, well, some say thou art John the Baptist. Some Elias and other Jeremiah are one of the prophets. The best they come up with is you're somebody from the past. And he said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Now this is the issue. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is he? What's he like? Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. A fisherman, who as far as we can gather, had very little education at all, knew God. 
He knew the Lord Jesus Christ because the Father was pleased to reveal it to him. And this revelation, it's supernatural. I say it's supernatural. This is something only God can do and it can't be done with human help. It can't be. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. God revealing himself to one of his sinful creatures is an absolute mystery to the natural mind because only God can perform it. And he does it through preaching. He does it through a way that the human mind would never come up with. God is pleased to reveal himself and reveal his son by one maggot preaching to another maggot. (laughs) Now, we never would have come up with that on our own. But that's the way God does it. Look here at Ephesians 3, verse 2. If you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, or this isn't just given to me for myself, Paul says, it's for you. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Well, for years, Paul knew the, the law. He knew the ceremonies. He knew all the, the morality thing. He didn't know God. Now he does. He says it's by revelation. It wasn't by education. Paul had the best education money could buy at that time. But it wasn't by education. It was by revelation. Whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. I understand this because God's revealed it to me. Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it's now revealed on his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now how is Jew or Gentile? How is any person ever going to understand the mystery of how it is God saves sinners. How? It's through the preaching of Christ. God sends a preacher. How did the Ethiopian eunuch know what he was reading? He knew that Isaiah was talking about somebody, some man, but he didn't know who. God had to send Philip to him to tell him. Didn't he? How did you come to know Christ? God sent you a preacher, didn't he? Tell you about Christ. And even now, speaking to believers, even now, you... You've heard the gospel, you know, many, many, many times. You've read God's word many times. And how often have you said this or thought this? You've read a passage of scripture, or probably more likely you've heard somebody preach from it. And you say, I I never saw that before. (laughs) I've heard somebody preach from that so many times. It's been a blessing before, but I never saw that before. What happened? (laughs) God revealed it to you. And he did it through preaching. He did it from his word. So as the Lord enables us now, we preach Christ. I mean as best we can. We preach Christ. We teach the scriptures verse by verse. You know why? Because I want you to know what God's word says. It's, it's so important to me 
that you know what God's word says. It's my responsibility to teach you the word. And if you don't know what God's word says, I feel responsible for it. But that's as far as I can go. Try and teach your head. So you've heard it. So you, you know what God's word says. So somebody stands up here and says, this is what God's saying. That's as far as I can go. I can't make you believe it. I can't make you love it. I, oh, I'll do my best to tell you about Christ. Tell you who he is. Point you to him. But I can't make you believe him. I can't make you love him. Because salvation is not education. It's not education. Our dead minds can't be educated into knowing and believing and loving spiritual truths because they're dead. Salvation, knowing God, believing God, loving God, trusting Christ, that can only come by God's revelation to the heart. And every one of us here has seen that happen. Just think about it. Two people sitting in the same congregation week after week after week, maybe year after year after year. They hear the same messages preached. They hear the same, they hear the same scripture readings. They sing the same songs. They hear the same prayers. They both hear the same preachers. One of them sees religion. One of them sees true doctrinal statements. One of them loves Christ and believes Christ. What's the difference? God is pleased to reveal himself to one. It's the only difference. But if God's going to reveal himself to the hearts of his people, I'm telling you, he does it through preaching, through the preaching of Christ. And I know that's the truth, that it's dependent on God's revelation to us. I know that's true. Because this truth puts man where he belongs. It makes us completely dependent on God to do all the saving. It makes salvation of the Lord. It's of the Lord's will, of the Lord's purpose, and the Lord's application. It's all of the Lord. So this revelation of Christ, now it comes from the preaching of Christ. And I would say that the best way for someone to know God, to know what God's like, to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to know what he's like, is to hear specifically the preaching of Christ crucified. The preaching of Christ crucified is not just to say that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross 2,000 years ago. The preaching of Christ crucified is to tell how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Preaching Christ crucified is to preach why did Christ die? Why did the Son of God in the flesh die? He died for the sins of his people. He died to satisfy God's justice. Preaching Christ crucified is to tell what Christ accomplished when he died. When my body finally dies, that will accomplish nothing. It'll accomplish nothing but sorrow for my family left behind. But when Christ died, he accomplished something. Remember there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared unto the Lord, and they spake of his decease which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. When Christ died, he accomplished something. He accomplished the eternal justification of everybody that the Father gave him to save. To preach Christ crucified is to preach the Lord Jesus Christ as the successful, victorious Savior of sinners. 
Whoever it is he died for, they're redeemed. They're saved. He's successful and he'll not lose one. And that's the very reason if you're a sinner, you should come to him begging for mercy because he's able to save. That's why you come to him. So like I say, the the best way I can think of for us to know God is to go to Calvary. Christ crucified. All of the attributes of God are seen most clearly at Calvary. Let me give you a few things that I see here. At Calvary, I see the eternality of God. Look back at Acts chapter 2. I see the eternality of God at the cross. Because at the cross, I see God's eternal purpose of redemption being accomplished through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's God's eternal purpose being carried out. Now, the only way we can know that is if God's pleased to reveal that to us. And he is pleased to reveal that to us through preaching, through the preaching of Christ crucified. That's what Peter did. Look here at Acts 2, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, not by your will, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it's not possible that he should be holden of it. Peter tells them, you fellas didn't cook this plan up. You didn't finally set a trap that, that took Jesus of Nazareth and got him crucified. That was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's why God raised him from the dead. Look over a page to Acts chapter 4. Peter knew how to beat this drum. Look what he says in Acts 4 verse 26. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. You know, the, those men there, both, both Jews and, and Romans, they did exactly what their wicked hearts wanted to do. But it's like they took the Old Testament scriptures and used it like a script in a play and said, what am I supposed to do next? Well, I go stage left, I go stage right, I say this, you say this. They did it exactly like God determined before to be done. And we would never have known that the cross is God's eternal purpose of redemption being carried out unless somebody came and preached Christ crucified to us that says that told us from the scriptures how that he died. Why did he die? What did he accomplish in his death? Why was he resurrected from the dead? Christ crucified is God's eternal will and purpose being carried out. All right, second at Calvary. I see this. I see God as holy. As he suffered on the cross, the Savior cried, my God, my God. Now, oftentimes he referred to God as his father, didn't he? Here, he calls him my God. My God, the one who stands in judgment of him, the one who is punishing him. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me, he said. 
Now, this is a mystery that can only be revealed. Our pea brains would never figure this out. At Calvary, God forsook God. God's always one, yet God forsook God. At Calvary, God who is one turned his back on God. Now, you know why he did that? Because God's holy. God must be holy. Now, we, we read in other places about the holiness of God. Isaiah saw those angels flying about his throne, crying, holy, holy, holy. Now, I believe that, don't you? When you hear those angels crying, holy, holy, I, I believe God's holy. Well, I'll tell you where I see it, where I see it in action. God must be holy. He turned his back on his son, his beloved son. The son in whom he's well pleased, he turned his back on his son because his son was made sin. He took away all of his loving presence, took it away from his son and gave his son his wrath because Christ had been made sin for his people and God's holy. He can't look on sin. He can't and he won't accept sin. Never. He won't have any mercy on sin. He must give it justice. Even when that sin's found on his son. Now, I don't know about you parents, but I expect you're like me. I cut my children a lot of slack. <laughs> I mean, I cut them a lot of slack. If I was, if they got in trouble and I was the judge, I mean, they'd go scot-free if I possibly could. They sure would get off as light as I could. Not God. Not God the Father. He poured out all of the wrath of the eternal Godhead on His Son. Because His Son was made sin. That's God's holiness. And God's holiness has to be revealed to us. Or else we'll think God's just going to accept the best I can do. I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but God will accept the best I can do. Will he? Look to the cross and find out. You find out otherwise. God's holy. The third thing I see at Calvary is this. God is just. God is just. You know, people like to argue. I saw it again this week. People like to argue. Who, what, who is it put Jesus to death? Was it the Jews or the Romans? You know, I want to jump in there and tell him, you're both wrong. <laughs> it wasn't the Jews or the Romans. It was the Father. The Father put His Son to death. He told us about Zechariah 13, verse 7. He said, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. The Father said, Awake, O sword, the sword of justice, against my shepherd, the shepherd that I sent to get my people, against the man that is my fellow. Now who else can be the fellow of the father but the son? The father is the one who plunged the sword of justice into the heart of his son. And it pleased him to do it. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased God's justice to slaughter his son. When the father put the son to death, he was just and right to do it. You see, the father 
never would have put his son to the cursed death on the tree unless the son deserved it. The son deserved to be crucified. You know why? He'd been made sin for his people. He became guilty of all of the sin of all of his people without ever committing a sin. Without ever having a sin nature. There's a mystery, isn't it? How can the Lord Jesus Christ be the sinless substitute, the sinless sacrifice, and yet be made guilty of sin? I had no idea. That can only be believed by revelation. Even when you believe it, you don't understand it. It's just so. The Father made His Son sin for His people, and then He gave Him justice. He gave Him everything that that sin deserves. See, that's why the Father turned His back on the Son. He can't look on sin. That's why the Son died. Because death, that's what sin deserves. All of God's elect deserve eternal death. They deserve the wrath of God. If if you believe Christ, you know why that wrath won't fall on you? You know why you'll never die? Spiritually, eternally, you know why you'll never die? Christ already did for you. Because God's just. You see, if God punished Christ for your sin, He'll never punish you for them. If the Father punished His Son for your sin, you don't have to fear standing before God in judgment and ever fear hearing Him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Never. Because justice is already satisfied. Now that can only be understood. That can only be believed and loved by the revelation. The revelation through the preaching of Christ crucified. Otherwise, here's what we'll think. We'll think something like this. Christ died as an example. Christ died as an example that, you know, we ought to be nice to folks. Or we'll think God put an innocent man to death so he can let the guilty go free. Let me tell you something. If the Father put an innocent man to death and let the guilty go free, he's an unjust judge. And he's not. Calvary we see God's justice fourthly and this is very very closely tied to his justice at Calvary I see God's merciful you know, one of the things that I love about God's salvation is the justice of it when God saves a sinner it's just God's salvation is just everything about it It's just and right. God would never take away the salvation of any of his people. Anyone. He will never take salvation away from anyone that he sent Christ to die for because that would be unjust. The father gave his son strict, exact justice for the sin of his people at Calvary. I mean, he gave him absolutely everything, every drop of justice that sin deserves. God is so holy, he's so wise, he's so good, that that sacrifice, when he gave Christ everything that sin deserves, that made it right for God to show mercy to sinners. See, God is both just and merciful. He must do both perfectly at the same time because they're both attributes of God. They must both be perfect. The only way God can be just 
and still be merciful is if Christ the substitute satisfied God's justice for you so that it's right for God to be merciful to his people. God chose a people, a sinful people to save and he made it right for him to be merciful to them. Isn't that wonderful? That is just so wonderful. God's merciful because he satisfied his own justice himself. Now that can only be understood by revelation. And you see that revealed most clearly at Calvary can only be understood by revelation. Otherwise, what we'll think, just like what Paul said in Romans 1, we'll think God's like us. Yet when we're merciful to somebody, what do we do? We just ignore their sin. We just ignore the thing that they did and we just don't bring it up and we don't punish them for it and we say that's merciful. You know, a, a guilty man appears before the judge and the judge gives him a light sentence and because the family's all been pleading, the lawyer's been pleading, now be merciful. Be, he, he's guilty. He's been found guilty. We've already had that part of the trial. He's guilty. Now this is a sentencing phase. Just be merciful. And the judge is merciful and gives him a light sentence. That's what we think mercy is. God is not merciful to you and me because he ignores our sin. He's merciful to us because it's right for him to do it. He satisfied justice for us. Then at Calvary, fifthly, I see this. I see God loves sinners. Now everyone says, God is love, don't they? Everybody says that. But now, and that's true. That's a true statement. God is love. But what does God is love mean? You know, people want to say God is love and they just take that, that statement out of scripture. They pluck it out of scripture and they don't compare it with the rest of scripture. They don't make it stand up to the rest of scripture. They say, this is what that means to me. You know, the, the word of God is never what it means to me. The word of God is what it means, what it means according to the, the rest of scripture. But they take that statement out of Scripture and they say, well, that means God loves everybody without exception. Now, just think about that for a minute. Just all you got to do, even the human mind can see that's not true. If God loves everyone without exception, and he still sends people to hell, what does God's love have to do with anything? I mean, there's people in hell right now. Right now, there's people in hell. If God loves them the same way that, that he loves the Apostle Peter, what does God's love mean? Not one blessed thing. That, mean, that makes God's love meaningless and useless. But the preaching of Christ crucified, that reveals what God is love means. It means God loves sinners. It means God loves his elect. How do I know that? By revelation. Look at 1 John. First John chapter 4. It's by the revelation through the preaching of Christ crucified. Here Peter tells us something that happened because of Christ, that's revealed because of Christ crucified. 1 John 4, verse 10. Well, verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love. 
Here's love. Here's the definition of it. Here's the picture of it. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And here's how I know God loved his people. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I look at that verse. I have to shake my head in wonder. God must really love sinners. The scene at the cross is unimaginable agony. It's bloody, bloody, bloody torture. It's a such a demonstration of man's hatred against God. The Savior hung there didn't even look like a man. His visage was marred more than anybody else they ever crucified. And beyond that, far beyond that, he made his soul an offering for sin. The sight is so horrible, God turned the sun off to keep us from seeing it. The Father did that to his son. He must really love sinners. Huh? He must really love sinners if he did that to his son to make it right for him to be merciful to sinners. Oh. And I'll tell you, the only way we'll see how God loves sinners is by going to Calvary and finding out who it is that Christ died for. This uh, weekend, my wife and I have uh, had our grandson along, just the two of us, for for a few days. Gary, I'm plumb stupid. I mean that emotional, sappy love that I feel for that kid makes me act a fool. Don't ever confuse that. With God's love. I mean, I use that in illustration, and I it doesn't belong in the same area code with God's love for his people. God loved his people so much, he sacrificed his son. That's love. That's love. And here's comfort. If that's been revealed to you, here's comfort for you. God loved you so much. He sacrificed his son for you. He'll never not love you. Never. Then six, that Calvary, I see this. God forgives sin. On purpose. At Calvary, Christ wasn't just trying to save somebody. He died to save somebody. Specifically from their sin. He called those people his sheep. And I want to tell you, He got the job done. He got the job done because his precious blood was shed as a sacrifice for sin. All of the sin of all of God's elect, it's forgiven. It's forgiven because the blood of Christ took that sin away. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. You know why God forgives sin? There's no sin to be angry about. The blood of Christ took it away. 
Then seventh at Calvary, I see this. That Christ, in His death, justified His people. Look at Romans chapter 5. Now the sacrifice of Christ made His people to have no sin. Justification is not just as if I'd never sinned. To be justified means I have never sinned. That's how powerful and effective the blood of Christ is. Romans 5 verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God committeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. The blood of Christ made people who are ungodly by nature to be sinless by nature. That's how powerful the blood of Christ is. And the only way that can be believed, the only way you can rest in that, it's got to be revealed. The blood of Christ, what his blood means, has to be revealed to us through the preaching of Christ crucified. Then here's the last thing, eighth. At Calvary, I see why Christ is coming again. I don't want anyone here to miss comfort for the hearts of believers. Christ is coming back. Remember in Acts 2, we read it earlier, Peter said God raised up Christ from the dead because it's not possible that death could hold him. You know why Christ didn't stay dead? Because the sin that was charged to him is gone. Put away by his precious blood. The only reason for death is sin. Well, there was no sin left on him. His sacrifice put it away. He couldn't stay dead. He had to rise again. Look at John chapter 14. Now Christ is risen. He's risen from the grave. And that means he's coming again. John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, as many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go, he's going to the cross, to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Christ crucified. He suffered and died on the cross to prepare a place for a people and to prepare a people for the place. And he's ascended back to glory. Ever living, making intercession for his people. Pleading this blood. Pleading his suffering. Pleading his death for his people. Now there he sits on the throne of glory. And you know what he's waiting on? He's just waiting on that last sheep to be brought in. And I don't know if it'll be immediately, but at some point after that, he's going to wrap this thing up. I mean in a trumpet, in a blast. He's going to come again and every eye shall see him. And you know why it is he's coming back personally? He's coming back personally to make sure he has every last one that the Father gave him. He's going to gather them together with him Take him to glory. Where we will ever.
be with you. One more scripture, Hebrews chapter 9. When Christ returns, gathers his people together to be with him, we're not going to be like we are now. In the earth, the heaven, wherever it is that we live in this new creation, it's not going to be like it is now either. Hebrews 9, you know, let me say this. Heaven is not just a continuation of this here on earth. Heaven's not even just a continuation of the hobbies that we enjoy. It's not hunting and fishing and, you know, whatever you like. No, it's not that, that at all. Look what the writer of the Hebrews tells us in verse 28 of Hebrews 9. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. When Christ returns, he's going to be without sin, isn't he? Well, of course he is, because he put the sin of his people away by a sacrifice. And when he returns, his people are going to be without sin too. When we see him, we should be like him. We'll be without sin, body and soul, in a creation without sin. Because Christ put it all away. And because of his death, because of what God is like, through the sacrifice of his son, his people, will be with him forever. Seeing his glory. Isn't that what he prayed? That we might be with him where he is and see his glory? That's what we'll have. Because that's what God's like. And he can do that because of the sacrifice of his son. I hope that's been a a blessing to you. Let's bow together. Our Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for this sweet, revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ found only in your word found only through the preaching of Christ and Father I pray that you would get glory to your name through this preaching this morning Father get glory show your glory your redemptive glory to each heart here this morning Father show that glory to those who are here this morning that that as of yet they don't believe you they don't know you Father, reveal yourself to them in mercy and grace, I pray. And Father, for those believers, they're here. They believe you. They know you. They love you. Father, bless and comfort and encourage their hearts by revealing the glory of Christ our Savior to their hearts. To encourage us to to continue going on in this journey that you've called us to here below. Father, it's in Christ's sake, in Christ's name, and for his sake, for the glory of his name, we pray. Amen. All right, Sean.